0: All right, well, I'm so grateful to be here with you today. Man, it's such an honor. We've gotten just some great opportunities to meet so many of you over the past few weeks and to get to know more about you. And I've also gotten the opportunity to get to know a little bit more about our pastor, Pastor Aaron. You know, I've known him for quite some time. I've known him to be an intelligent man, a, someone who of great wisdom, someone who chooses his words carefully. But you know what? One thing I've learned about him since I've been here, I never knew he was all that funny. Like I didn't realize he was so funny. I mean, he's been telling a couple stories in the past few weeks and I just think about him during the week and I find myself laughing, especially that story about he and Lincoln, you know, hawking tickets at the Vanderbilt game <laughs> and the vision of little Lincoln's hand, you know, <laughs> dude, that was funny. Man, oh man. Well, hey, I'm gonna start off today and we're gonna gonna go on a journey and uh, I pray the Lord would open our hearts to hear his word clearly and uh, he would speak his word through me today. But I wanna ask you a question to begin with. I want you to think about the best sleep you've ever had. All right, teenagers, maybe it was last night, I don't know. But parents with young kids, you're like, what's sleep? I don't even remember sleep, right? Okay, well, maybe I remember maybe one of those moments for me might have been the time, the day you come back from summer camp. You know, it's noon and you walk into your room and you like fall into the bed, clothes on, shoes on, dirty. It's like ugly sleep, you know, but you're sleeping and, and you, you don't even wake up until 2 p.m. the next day and you're like, oh, did I sleep like for seven years? What happened, you know? That's, that was good sleep. Or maybe if you're a parent, of, of small kids, do you remember the first time that you got away and, and went off with your spouse for maybe a weekend or a vacation without your kids? And that first night you went to sleep and you woke up, Jen and I went to Carmel, California. Anybody been to Carmel? It's on the coast, beautiful place. Went there and we got up in the morning and I looked over and it was 8.30. The clock said 8.30, and I was so excited. I turned over to Jen, and I said, hey, baby, it's 8.30, and she was like, "No, oh, yeah. I'm not done sleeping. This is beautiful. Be quiet. Uh, it's the story of our marriage, really. But <laughs> um, or how about the post-Thanksgiving-induced coma? Anyone? Man, that's good sleep, you know? Actually, in my family... I, if, we, if my family was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, I would be sleepy, the, the, the dwarf, because I, after the Thanksgiving feast, any time I slow down or hit the couch, I, I'm like, like this. And, and I do get ridiculed by my family for this and made fun of, but you know what? Who my favorite family member is and who the only person to ever beat me to this moment, to ever beat me to sleep, on the couch, he didn't beat me to sleep, but he beat me to the punch. My brother-in-law, Elliot, who's here today, he's my favorite family member for that reason. We share the ridicule. We share the burden of ridicule. I don't even know if I've ever seen a full quarter of football on Thanksgiving. I mean, why do they even show football on Thanksgiving? The advertisers should get a discount, you know, because half the people are asleep watching football, right? But just think about the best sleep you've ever had. And then I wanna ask you this question. When is the last time you really rested? When is the last time you really felt rest in your body, in your heart, in your mind? And I'm gonna give you a few seconds because I'm gonna go out on a limb here and I'm gonna guess that that's maybe a hard thing for you to remember. Because we live in a culture that says, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead or, or, Rest is for the weary, but I'm gonna go because what happens is that we're afraid that if we rest, that something will happen. If we rest, if we get caught resting, we'll be ridiculed. If we rest, our coworkers will get the promotion and we won't. If we slow down now, maybe our kids won't have the opportunities to be the athletes or the academics that they could be. If we rest, oh man, somebody's gonna come in that moment, they're gonna take my house away, they're gonna repo my car or my boat. If we rest, we lose control. And we have this perception that really the bottom line is that that we believe that if we rest, we lose. It's a relevant question, right? When is the last time you really rested? You know, my family and I came just came off a decade-long season of a sprint. I mean, we were running. We were working and living in Frisco, Texas, one of the fastest-growing cities in the nation, um, and we were working in one of the fastest-growing churches in the nation, and we loved it. We loved so many things about it, but I don't say that to brag about myself. I mean, I was just right place, right time, let's be honest, <laughs> but uh, we were there, and... It was a season where when an organization is growing, there are some realities that you have to face. And that is, you have to constantly adapt to new changes. You have to manage the increasing demand of always, always insufficient resources. And you have to keep stretching and growing at the rate the organization is growing, or you will break, or you will get fired. (laughs) During that time, we recorded four different worship albums, we launched two satellite campuses, and Jen and I brought three kids into the world, right? My kids are Texans, okay, so don't hate, all right? All of my kids were born in Texas. I was born in Texas. They say in Texas that if you aren't in Texas, you, you get there as fast as you can. Well, we moved out of Texas, okay, so some credibility here. Moved back to Tennessee, but. You know what, moving back and arriving in Tennessee, don't get me wrong, I mean, we, we enjoyed our time there and we loved it, but it didn't leave a lot of margin for rest. And I don't think that was the organization's fault. That was really nobody's fault but my own, right? But when we moved back to here, we really had a lot more margin. We moved here to have that. And we were in this place where I didn't have this these production goals. I didn't have these people that I was leading and counting on and now it's been two months and you know what I've realized is that I'm an addict. I'm addicted to productivity. Anybody else in here with me? I I love my to-do list. I I just love my to-do list. I I love the feeling of marking something off. I've got this app on my phone and when I hit it, it goes bleep. You know, and I'm like, ah, man. But since I've been here, my to-do list hasn't been quite as long, and I've been struggling, I've been struggling. Am I still significant? (laughs) I mean, does it matter that I live today? No, I'm not that dramatic. But anyway, I've been doing things, kind of crazy things, but I've been doing things just to get that fix, you know? Like, uh, change poopy diaper, check, you know? Oh, oh! I let the dog out. Um, yeah, I even go back at the end of the day. You know, I'm that, I'm this addicted to my checklist. I go back at the end of the day and I write things on my checklist that I did that weren't on there before. And then I go, bling, bling, ah, bling. You know, <laughs> guys, I'm sorry, man. You, you're like, I don't know if I can listen to this guy. He's too crazy. But it's kind of funny, right? But what I realized is. The truth is that I don't know how to rest. And I think if many of you examined your life and you stopped for a moment, I think you would find that this truth, that this is true about you as well. And the result of my addiction and our addiction to productivity, the result of our inability to rest is this. In the end, our busyness is not just a result of too much to do. We can't believe that lie. It is a symptom of an unsettled heart. It is an indication of a misshapen identity. So we have to ask ourselves a question, why are we really filling our schedules with more and more? It's not just a practical issue, it's a spiritual issue. It goes deeper than just having too much to do. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us would have to admit that as much as we say we want to, we're actually afraid of slowing down. At the foundation of this is that we're trying desperately to secure for ourselves success, significance, and satisfaction. And because of this culture we live in, I'm gonna give you five truths about rest today, so I want you to write this down. Truth number one about rest. Because of this context we live in, a rest when I'm dead culture Rest may be the most powerful and yet most neglected form of worship. Rest may be the most powerful and yet most neglected form of worship for you and me who live in this culture. Now, I want you to think about it. Um, Do you remember the story of the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt? If you haven't heard the story or you haven't read it in in some time, I encourage you to go back to Exodus chapter one and start there. It's a riveting story in all of literature, spiritual or not. It is a riveting, powerful story. But it starts like this. The Israelites had been for a few hundred years in Egypt and they were prospering. And they were doing so well that the Egyptians there, the people who were native to that land and Pharaoh were actually getting jealous of them. So Pharaoh actually started a systematic, a systematic way of destroying the Israelites. So what he did, he started by killing their young male babies. And then he began to oppress them and he put them eventually into slavery. And he took them out of their their storefronts and out of their consumer producer role and he put them in the role of slave. He put them in a role of forced labor. And it was in this context that God raised up a man named Moses. See, Moses was part of Pharaoh's household. He was one of those young male babies that was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in the household, but then he murdered an Egyptian man and he ran off to hide away. But God spoke to him in a burning bush and called him out and he said, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses, after much time, reluctantly accepted God's call. He went before Pharaoh and he he did miracles and God through Moses brought plagues and yet Pharaoh didn't relent, right? Pharaoh said, no, I won't let your people go. And then finally, the last straw was that God sent the angel of death through Egypt and he killed the firstborn of all of Egypt. And in doing so, he killed Pharaoh's firstborn son. And at that point, Pharaoh was so fed up that he finally said, fine, go. And under the cover of night, the whole group, the whole nation, the whole family of Israel moved out of Egypt. But it wasn't long before Pharaoh decided that he was going to change his mind. And so he went to pursue them. And there the Israelites were with their backs against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army and all of its power coming down upon them. And here we find one of the greatest miracles of all of history, one of the most well-known, when Moses reaches out his staff and he touches the water and God in his great power parts the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites walk across on dry land, right? Do you remember that? And they're on the other side, and here comes Pharaoh's army down into the riverbed, racing, coming after them, yelling, swords bared, just ready to overtake them, confident. And Moses, by the command of God, reaches out his hand, and the waters crash over them, and they're destroyed. And what did the Israelites do? They rejoice. They sing songs to God. they celebrate. they get their tambourines out. Anybody wish you had tambourines in church still? Yeah? Sometimes I do. You know now that I'm not on the stage as much, I'm just like, "I'm going to bring my tambourine next week." you know <laughs> But they got their tambourines. They were celebrating, but it didn't take long for them to start grumbling and complaining again. "Oh Moses, why did you bring us out here? This is the wilderness. How are we gonna eat? How are we gonna drink water? Where are we gonna stay? What are we gonna do? We came out here and we left Egypt, but what now? What's a, And then they did an even worse thing. Well, maybe, maybe we should go back to Egypt. Man, things were better in Egypt than they are out here. You know, I mean, slavery wasn't all that bad. At least we knew that we'd have food and we'd have shelter. Moses, what are we gonna do? And God somehow in his mercy looked down upon this people and said, I will feed you. And so he sent manna and he sent quail and every morning he fed them. And And he sent water from the rock and he quenched their thirst. And he led them faithfully with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was faithful. And right here in the midst of all of this, they came to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai And Moses went up that mountain and met with God there. And God wrote on two stone tablets the Ten Commandments. And these commandments were God's way of establishing a new order, a new way of living that was going to be the opposite. It was going to start something new from what they had known in the land of Egypt. And right here in the middle of this wandering, in the middle of this place where they, they didn't know what to do, God was giving them a foundation. And in these 10 commandments, we find three crucial issues that would communicate to Israel how God's vision for their new journey was distinctly different from their life in Egypt. For 400 years, they had lived in an economy of more where people were used and abused in the pursuit of growing a bigger and more wealthy empire. But here in the commandments, we see something different. Look at them with me. Commandments number one through three. No other gods before me, right? Number two is that you wouldn't have any idols. Don't make any images and don't worship them. Number three is don't take the name of the Lord in vain. In Egypt, they worship many gods, but what God was saying here in reaffirming is that the foundation of the Jewish faith, all the way back to Abraham, was that there is only one God. He's establishing a new form, a new economy. And then we look at Commandments five through 10. And it says, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. And this new way of living God was saying this new way of living is about loving your neighbor, showing them kindness. He was establishing a rule of healthy community that would give them their identity as people and eventually as a nation. But right here, sandwiched in between these two things, is a commandment about the Sabbath. You remember in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, oh, but equal to that is love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see any parallels here? Those first three commandments are about love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six are about love your neighbor as yourself. They are ways of loving our neighbor. There are new pathways of community. But right here in the middle is the bridge that brings those together. And that is this. Commandment number four, Exodus 20, verse eight through 11 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. In six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath represents a radical disengagement from from the producer and consumer mentality of the economy of more. It, It represents a radical disengagement from the culture of Egypt. To rest is to acknowledge that your significance, your satisfaction, and your success are not solely dependent on your ability to produce. To rest is to realize that those three things aren't solely based upon your ability, your singular finite ability to produce. Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian author says this, the Sabbath rest of God is the ability to acknowledge that the people of God are not commodities. He goes on to say this, Sabbath is an antidote to anxiety. Man, is our culture not just reft with anxiety and worry? I mean, the more we have, the more we worry, right? We think, well, if, if I just get rich one day, do you know that rich people are some of the people with the highest amount of anxiety? And I'll add this. I believe that rest is the cure for my addiction to productivity. Rest can be the cure for your addiction to productivity. Israel had lived in this Egyptian economy of more for so long that they didn't know how to trust him any longer. Their trust muscles, their, their trust habits had atrophied. And they had come to this place where they just didn't know how to trust. But here's, here's, here's the cool thing is that God knew this. So he created a command that would require them to cease from working and striving at least one day a week. God knew they would certainly try to slip back into saving themselves and try to find meaning through producing and getting ahead. He knew they would try to put other gods, idols, and things before him. He knew that in order to do these things, they would take advantage of their neighbors and fight and lie and steal and kill, etc., in order to have more. Does this culture sound familiar to you? Are we constantly trying to slip back into these things when God has called us to a different economy? So God created the Sabbath rest. And truth number two about rest is this, write this down. Rest is the means by which God teaches us to trust him. You see, the Israelites were on the run. They were on the run and God knew that they would need something to help break them out of their scarcity and their fear mentality. They were prone, so prone to act like fugitives on the run. And man, so are we. What are we running from, guys? What God is saying to Israel and to us is will you continue to be fugitives or will you accept my freedom? And this is a question, I just wanna present this to you. And I really felt as I was praying about this and and God was just leading me in in this message, I really feel like this particular question is one that you and I need to wrestle to the ground. You and I today, the people in this room, we've got to get a hold of this. You need to go home and you need to wrestle with this question and it's this. What are you afraid of right now that keeps you running when you should be resting? What are you afraid of right now that keeps you running, striving when you should be resting? You gotta wrestle with that one guys. Will you live in the economy of more or the economy of trust? What is it that keeps you running when you should be resting? Truth number three about rest is this. Rest should be a distinctive characteristic, a distinctive quality of Christian community. People should look at Christians and not see them as crazy chickens with their heads cut off. They should look at us and be able to see a peace and a rest that is distinctive about someone who follows Christ. Because listen to this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30 says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Those 10 commandments were fulfilled by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now we don't have to wait until the Sabbath to have rest. We have rest in Christ every day. In a moment's notice, we can turn to him and rest in the work that he has done. Our significance, our satisfaction, our success, all wrapped up And sealed, the victory won, our freedom claimed by the name of Jesus Christ. Who else should live restfully? Who else should walk in perfect peace than those who call Jesus their Lord? And guys, I just, I feel like the Lord is calling us out and saying this should be a distinctive quality of this Christian community rest and peace. And that should be a light to those around you. It should be something that wakes people up to see the goodness and the mercy of God, that the work is complete, that you have the freedom to rest and God is teaching us through rest to trust him more. Amen? This is what makes his burden light, that we can rest. Truth number four about rest is this. Or truth number three, I'm sorry. It does say three or four. Um, Rest begins with surrender. Are you living open-handed? Rest really begins with surrender. It begins with surrendering your ability. It begins with surrendering your need to be productive. It begins with surrendering your control of your life. Your belief that... What you do is the only thing that makes you successful, significant, or satisfied. You have to surrender that. But when you do, God's peace comes into your life. Are you living open-handed? And I, I thought I'd just give you some questions to, to get those, those thoughts generating, because I, want this, I don't want this to just be an inspiring message. I want this to be practical for you. So I have some questions for you to ask. What is, what is keeping you from that rest? Is it your past? Is it your finances, the debt load that you're carrying? Is it your loneliness? Are you like me, a productivity addict, a to-do list junkie? What is it? Are you focusing on, on less important things just to be able to check something off and say you were productive today when you could be doing things that aren't quote unquote productive, but they are truly good? What is the foundation, here's another question, what is the foundation of your work? Is it situated in the economy of trust or the economy of more? It could be the same work that you do, but depending upon which economy you're working in, it's drastically different in its results. What is the foundation of your work? What economy are you working in? Are you working in God's economy of trust and mercy? Or are you working in the world's economy of more? Is your work found in the context of your value in what God has done or what you can do? Now the question is, do you have margin for loving your neighbor? And I think this is really where the rubber meets the road for us. Because what happens when we are unrested? What happens when we, when we are frantically moving around and we're busy and we have slivers of margin in our life? What happens is that we leave no room for our neighbor. And let's go back to that, that, that command from Jesus that says, love God, yes, but equally as important is love your neighbor. When we are not resting all that, we're, all that we're concerned about is efficiency. When you have no margin in your life, you are focused on, the priority for you is efficiency. And it has been for me. I'm not pointing you out. I'm pointing myself out too. But efficiency carves a rough and jagged path through community. Efficiency leaves no room for our neighbors. But yet that is the essential priority that Jesus put out there for us. Are you leaving room in your life for your neighbor? If you call yourself a Christ follower, and I do myself, if I call myself a Christ follower, I have to leave margin and room in my life for my neighbor. And what rest does is it allows me to even see my neighbor. It allows me to not get caught up in the blur of life and miss the fact that there are hurting people right next to me. And there are people who need the love of Jesus and need peace and rest as well right next door to me. So remember this, rest, number one, truth number one, rest may be the most powerful and yet most neglected form of worship. Think about rest as an opportunity to truly worship God. Number two, rest should be a distinctive characteristic of Christian community. Number three, rest is a means by which God teaches us to trust him. And number four, Rest begins with surrender. So I just wanna tell you one more story before I finish, but living in Dallas is not, uh, not out of the question to frequently visit the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Anybody been there? Okay, when you drive up to the Nashville airport, it's like there's beautiful trees and when you're coming off of 40, you kinda of go around this long sweeping curve and it's beautiful, and it's like, ah. Oh. And they did all the nice new renovations, and it's kind of like travel. Maybe, maybe travel is not super stressful. Maybe they're trying to make it a really nice thing. Dallas-Fort Worth Airport is like a metropolis. I mean, you drive in, and there's like toll booths. It looks like you're, walk- you're driving into a, a prison compound. There's 10 lanes wide. They have these confusing left exits, and every terminal seems the same. And it's a concrete it's two miles long it's massive and recently uh within the last couple years when you enter the north part of the airport they used to have you go straight and you go into the airport and you go right and you go on to highway 114 but but somebody really smart decided to flip those around right And now, for the last six months, I have missed the exit five different times because now you go right to go to the airport and go straight to go to 114, and it's maddening. There were actually some friends of mine who were on their honeymoon, uh, about to be on their honeymoon. They were going on their to catch their honeymoon flight to Hawaii, and they missed the exit. And therefore, they missed (laughs) their honeymoon flight. They spent a beautiful night in Terminal E, was romantic, they got some chips, they went and uh, got a National Geographic magazine from the H- Hudson News, whatever. <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. Where are the exit ramps in your life? If we wanna just break it down to something practical you can think of to apply this this week, where are the exit ramps in your life? Have you gotten them mixed up? Have you started to believe that to stay on the highway and keep going and grinding it out is better than exiting. You have to find the exits in your life. And so I'm gonna give you one specifically that I've used and that I want to challenge you to use this week, and that is this. I want you to take a two-hour block, at least two hours. If you can take a half a day, that's even better. But I want you to take at least two hours and I want you to exit. Exit. What I mean by that is that this is not productive time, this is not to-do list time, this is not that, this is just time for you to rest. Maybe you go sit under a tree for an hour, maybe you go to your prayer closet, maybe you go and have a cup of coffee, maybe you go and play out in the yard with your kids or something. Not productive, quote unquote, time, all right? And within that certain amount of time, I want you to do this, I want you to reflect on this scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. So before you leave today, before you walk out those brown doors right there, just in case you were questioning which doors I was talking about, those doors, I want you to write on your schedule, schedule an appointment with yourself, a block of two hours to rest, to take the exit ramp in your life. Because you don't have to wait. You don't have to turn your world upside down to find rest. Because Jesus is rest. Look to Jesus. And I'll read you this scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never grows faint or weary, there is no limit to his understanding, but he gives strength to the weary. And he strengthens the powerless. Listen to that today. Receive that truth. Youths may faint and grow weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will run. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. What would it feel like to run and not grow weary? What would it feel like for the God of the universe to give strength to us, to give us rest? Reflect on that scripture this week. And truth number five about rest, and we're done here, is this, to rest may be the most productive thing you do this week. Rest may be the absolutely the most productive thing that you do this week. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, you are here with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to establish a new way of living. Not a way that was based upon our efforts or our ability to produce, but that was based solely upon the work that you did on the cross, and we love you for it, Jesus. Would you help us, Lord? Search our hearts. God, try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there are these these wicked and, and ways in us, Lord, that would, that would cause our hearts to be captured by something other than you, that would cause our identity to be founded in something other than you. Teach us, Lord Jesus, and would you give us rest? O oh, Prince of Peace, come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.